Good morning. It's good to see you today. There's quite a few. I'm glad to see that. Um, quite a week weather-wise, wasn't it? Hopefully, the week ahead will be a little better. Well, I'm in Daniel chapter 9 this morning, and as you're turning in the Word of God there, I'm just going to lead us in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, I'm excited to be in this chapter. It's a, a hard chapter, at least when you first read it. There's some difficult things as we try to understand what you said to your prophet. But there are things which, Lord, thankfully, at a place in which we are now, we can look back through history and see many of things which have been fulfilled and clarified for us. And so I want to ask, Lord, for the blessing of your word to be upon us today. We pray for understanding. You say in your word that you give us light and knowledge as we come to you to receive it. So I pray that we would have hearts to receive such knowledge today. And then, O oh God to be moved by what we do read. Because it's great. And it's profound. And it causes us to sit and wonder and think. So, Father, bless us today as we look at this chapter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Daniel chapter 9. If Daniel doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. Daniel chapter 9, beginning... With verse 20. That's where we left off last week. Would you stand with me? Let's read it together to get some bearings here. Got it? All right. Daniel chapter 9, beginning with verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with 
many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. You can be seated. What we just looked at and read together um, is one of the most difficult passages for interpreting, um, not just in the book of Daniel, but in the Bible. Okay, One of those difficult passages in the Bible. Um, and so that has, uh, it has been an interesting week of study, um, exegetically speaking. One commentator said, this passage is like a dismal swamp. That's how he said it is. It's sort of like if you were out on Friday trying to shovel a drift of snow, right? And you just when you think you've got to the bottom of it and it's cleared away and you take a break and you think about it and you're like, yeah, I think I got it. I think I got it figured out. <sighs> Something else blows in and all of a sudden another interpretation just cleans out what you thought you had figured out. That's sort of what it's like in Daniel chapter 9 here. So... Uh, but there's a few things about it that we can know and we ought to know and, and how we should approach it. But I want to say this, a few things at, at the start here. that It's a difficult passage, but it's a super encouraging passage. It's super encouraging. Okay, you will be encouraged by the end of today and again tomorrow because we will not finish at all. And along those lines, though, and the difficulty that is presented to us, in approach to it, I'm just going to ask for myself and for you that we come with some humility. If you think you got it figured out, well, just wait. <laughs> okay. Um, for every position that I read and I studied a lot, there are strengths and there are weaknesses. Sometimes the points have been very attractive and very fitting, but then ultimately just not convincing. Didn't convince me. So it's been a continuous study of, you think of someone who's whittling something down, just chipping off little by hill here until finally I got something that I can feel is really solid. At least that's what I'm shooting for. That's what I'm aiming for. But along those lines, keep this in mind as we approach this passage, that in general, the general scope of what is being said here, it is meant for understanding. You see that, right, in verse 22. It, Gabriel comes and he says, he, Daniel says, He made me understand speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have come out to give you confusion and so you have no idea what in the world I'm talking about. No, right? To give you insight, to give you understanding. God's Word, listen, always gives understanding to those who are ready to receive it. Right? I think of Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. Light is a picture in the Word of God for knowledge, right? Or as it goes on to say, it imparts understanding to the simple. So we can at least say this about this passage. It's meant for us to get it. We're not supposed to be in the dark about it. Okay? Thirdly, I would add this. We always want to go to the context, right? And we're going to look at the context of the whole Bible a little bit. 
We're going to look at the context of the book of Daniel itself, because obviously Daniel is going to help us interpret Daniel. And then, of course, most immediately at, at what is right here, what followed, you know, where does this passage fit in the overall section? Remember, this is derived from Daniel's prayer, right, what we looked at last week. Remember? So in verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. So what you're about to read went out. God said, I'm sending you this when you began praying to me. It's derived from Daniel's prayer. Therefore, it's going to be about some of the concerns that Daniel was praying about, the message that he's going to hear. So it's going to have something to do with the sins of the people of Israel, their iniquities. It's going to have something to do with that. It's going to have something to do with the desolation of Jerusalem, right? It's destruction. It's going to have something to do with those 70 years of exile. You get it, okay? So it's, it's derived from this prayer. God is a hearer of our prayer, and He's eager to help those who call on Him. We see that right here in the example of Daniel and how God just, as soon as He prayed, the word went out. But lastly, in this introduction to the message that he's about to hear, the messenger of God, Gabriel, prefaces it with a very profound little statement, right? At the end of verse 23, he says, I've come to tell it to you. And here's why. For you are greatly loved. So, the reason that God discloses Himself and His plans to us is ultimately a very personal one, isn't it? So, in its purpose, the purpose of this message, God is revealing His love to Daniel, to His people. He wanted to assure His servant that I'm sending this message out, and behind it is this, you are beloved to me. And God, by the way, kept telling Daniel this. He tells him two more times in chapter 10, you are greatly loved. Now, would it brighten your outlook a little bit on today if after praying, you know, maybe you're at home or later tonight because we're going to meet and pray tonight, that all of a sudden you heard an angel say, you're greatly loved. Would that brighten your day a little bit? Well, guess what? Your day is about to get a little brighter because look at this, okay? In Ephesians it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. And you know how this goes. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So God's love for you is great. He's loved you with a great love. And he tells you this over and over again. Not through an angel or an intermediary, but himself. He tells you, you are greatly loved. I also see in this, what we're just reading in this introduction, this segue into the message itself, that Daniel also loved God, didn't he? Did you notice that the time that the message came may seem like nothing, kind of gloss over it when we read it, but Daniel said in verse, this is back in 21, that Gabriel, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. I just want to think about that for a minute. 
The time of the evening sacrifice. Well, when's the last time Daniel saw an evening sacrifice? I mean, this is the first year of Darius. So Daniel's in his 80s. So this was back maybe when he was a teenager. The temple since 586 has been destroyed. There have no been no sacrifices. There certainly was no sacrifices going on in Babylon. And yet Daniel knows that this is the time of the evening sacrifice. Do you see that his life was built, still built, ordered around the worship of God? Worship in Old Testament terms was animal sacrifice. It was presenting sacrifices to God. Now, he didn't have the ability to do that, right? The temple wasn't even standing. But the habit of worship still dominated his life. So, I'm just thinking about this. If God were to strip away all of the outer observances of your faith, okay, let's just say this church is gone suddenly. You know, that could happen, right? It's outlawed, raised, destroyed. Who knows? We get that much snow, it caves in. Let's just say it happens. Let's say the preaching of the Word of God is banned and removed. Let's say you're not able to take the Lord's Supper as you are accustomed to doing, i.e., maybe you've been imprisoned for your faith. Or maybe you're in a place where there is no church. I think of my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law. They're in a town where there is no church that they can attend. It's in India. Would you then cease to worship? Well, I don't, I don't have a church to go to. How can I worship? Is love for God dependent on the right atmosphere? Well, notice the words of Jesus in John 14, verse 21. He said, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And here it is. We will come to him and make our home with him. The true test of love for God is not that we love him when all the conditions are right and all the provisions are in place, and you can go to church and you can do all those outward things. The true test is when you have none of that, and yet you still order your lives around His commandments and obedience to it. And in a way the world will never experience, God in His love will reveal His marvelous plan and intentions for you. So, we should therefore expect to see love behind the message that you're about to read. You get that? Daniel, you're greatly loved. That's why I'm coming to tell you this. It's grounded in God's great love for his people. And hence the angel's final comment in verse 23. Therefore, because you're loved, consider the word and understand the vision. Okay. That moves us into verse 24. And the key, okay, the key to this is what we call the 70 weeks. You see it there, right? Verse 24. 70 weeks, Gabriel says, are decreed about your people and your holy city. Okay, 70 weeks. Why 70? 
First, that's the question I want to ask. Why 70? Well, that takes us back to the beginning of Daniel's prayer, right? Just look at verse 2. Remember this? In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. But you're saying, well, wait a minute, the angel here said 70 weeks are decreed, right? Actually, it's literally 70 sevens, okay? Now, 70 weeks sounds a lot shorter than 70 years, but that would make sense, right? Because if it was just 70 weeks, then this would have transpired a long, long time ago. would have been done already. What is meant, however, is something a little different. And it's not, it wouldn't have been obscure to Daniel. In fact, it originates from the book of Leviticus. Turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 25. You'll see the verse up there, verses 8 to 12, but you need to find it. Leviticus 25, verses 8 to 12. In the law of Moses, it is written here, verse 8, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you forty-nine years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, On the Day of Atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap, what grows of itself, nor grapes, gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. So you see that beginning there, right? How God calculated the way God put it. You shall count seven weeks of years, or seven times seven years. So the 70 weeks, Gabriel is actually saying, is simply 70 times 7. Or, if you add that up, do the math, 490 years, right? And the significance of this in Leviticus is that when that 7 times 7 took place, or that 49th year came around, that 49th year is what led to what this celebration, right, called a jubilee. And what happened in that jubilee year was this, right? The land rested, and all those people or lands that had been sold to another were allowed to return. So property was given back, and people who were sold into slavery, because sometimes that happened, sold to your brother, were then released to go back to their own clan. So it was a release of captives, that 50th year. You get it? So Daniel's told that there will be 70 
weeks of years before the exile is truly ended. You get it? So this is a period of time that's leading up really to a tenfold jubilee. You see there, 490 years, ten jubilees. You get it. Now, Daniel's praying for the return of captive Israel to their native land, right? He's thinking immediate, right now. I want to go back. I want my people to return. God responds to Daniel with this much larger view, right? My plan for my people is bigger and it's broader than what you have in mind, Daniel. Because I'm planning to restore people to myself. Okay? God envisions not just the immediate. He will bring the people back. He will send out word. Seventy years will come and they will return. But what God envisions is an ultimate return from a lost state. Okay? As glorious children of God. Right? Think of Eden. Okay. And I think we need to take heart at this word. Because we are accustomed to the immediate. Right? We want immediate sanctification, not just for ourselves, but for everyone else that we care about. And we get rather frustrated when we don't see them making much progress. And we get too easily discouraged when our prayers don't seem to be affecting the kind of change that we want. But do you trust God's grand and His glorious plans? Then do what the Scripture says and be patient and be persistent. He is working. He is working. But as we will see, it does not always appear that way. All right. So, from here, Gabriel lays out two things, okay? The goal and then the process. The goal of the 70 weeks, the 490 years, and then the process of it. Okay, you got that? Goal and the process. So, first, the goal, right? What will the 70 weeks accomplish? Okay, you'll see it there. <clears throat> Flip back there for a minute. Okay. Still in verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Here they are. To finish the transgression, number one. To put an end to sin to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Literally, it is most holy one. Six purposes. Okay. And it's clear from these that Daniel is being shown the big picture here. Right? This is the end-all program for God's people. God loves His people. And you can see that in these purposes. And Daniel is led in here on God's grand plan, listen, to set captives free. Now you're going to ask them, well, what must happen for these things, these six, to be fulfilled? What has to happen? Okay. Well, a lot of this depends on how we take these 490 years. Okay? So let's talk about this a little bit. Let me back up here a minute. Okay. How do we take these 490 years? Are they literally exactly 
490 years. Now, this is a very significant question. And what I want to do is contend that they are not meant to be taken in a strict, literal sense. And here is why. Number one, because Daniel did not take the exile as strictly 70 years. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, the first wave of exile, which Daniel was a part of, began in 605 B.C. The decree to return given by Cyrus came in 538 or 539, give or take. Okay. That means that only, if you do the math, 66 to 67 years have transpired. And yet Daniel prays saying, the 70 years are complete. In his mind, they're done. They're finished. And so he prays. He doesn't wait three or four years and then say, well, I need to hold off here. And in three or four years, I'll pray because then the 70 years are complete. No. For Daniel, it's a round number. And by the way, we see this elsewhere in Scripture. Okay, For example, the 70 years was a common lifespan for a man's life. You see this in Isaiah and in the book of Psalms. right? In Isaiah it says, In that day Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, just like Jerusalem. And then he says, Like the days of one king. People on average lived about 70 years give or take, right? Or in Psalms, the years of our life, wrote Moses, are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Roundabout, we live for about 70 years. But thirdly, as in other scriptures, certain numbers are used for their symbolic significance, not exact lengths. So, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 4, the prophet is told, and he had some interesting things that he did to proclaim God's word, but he's told on one occasion to lay on his side, I think it was his left or his right, for 390 days. And then he was to go and he was lay on his other side for 40 days. And each day, God said, represents a year of punishment for Israel. Now, that totals 430 years. 390 plus 40, right? 430 years. Now, why that number? Because they would literally be punished for that long? Well, no. They were not punished for 430 years in exile. But because it was symbolically significant. You say, where have I heard 430 before? Well, that was the number of years that the people of Israel sojourned in Egypt. Remember? For 430 years before there was an exodus. So God is corresponding their exile in Assyria and Babylon to the time in Egypt. What we have in Daniel is also symbolically significant. I already pointed that out to you. 490 years, or as we have said, is a tenfold jubilee. So symbolically, it's significant. Now this is especially important because... From this point, Gabriel's going to break down these 77s into three divisions, okay? Three time units. And this is not the first time that the future has been laid out in a threefold division. Remember Daniel 7? For time, times, and half a time. How long is that supposed to be? Well, it's not about specifics, is it? But Daniel is replete with patterns. So you see these patterns coming up again and again. So notice the breakdown, right? Verse 25 and 26. Here it is. 
Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And we'll just pause there. I take this and this breakdown that Gabriel has given Daniel schematically. Otherwise, what you have is this, okay? You have seven weeks, he says, which would have been 49 years, followed by 62 weeks, which would be exactly 434 years, followed by one week, right? Which we often call the tribulation, the seven years. The problem is we cannot fit these historical, these breakdowns into a historical framework. Now try your best, but you will not find a marker that ends the first 49 years. You take the decree of Cyrus, which was in 538, 49 years later, the year is 489. You know what happened in 489? Nothing. And all of a sudden, you're running into problems. And what you're left to say is, well, I guess Daniel and God must have made a mistake. Well, did he? Or ought we just to understand this in roughly roundabout periods? Just like Daniel understood that it was roughly 70 years since the exile began. That's how I take it. So the process. Okay. The first stage. God says, my plan will occur in stages. In verse 25, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So, the first stage, we'll see the city of Jerusalem rebuilt. God will answer Daniel's prayer after all. Now, that word that went forth refers to the decree of Cyrus in 538. Did you know that before that man was ever born, Cyrus, this was foretold in Isaiah? Have you seen this? In Isaiah 44 to 45? Who says of, here he is by name, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. It's God speaking. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. And you see those words, anointed and shepherd? You know what I'm tempted to think when I first, first comes to my mind? Is Messiah. I think of Jesus. Do you? That's what I think when I see those terms. But Cyrus is significant because you know what you see him as? He's the political savior for Israel. God raised them up for the short-term goal of freeing the captive Israelites. Through him, they're going to be released. They're going to be able to go back to Jerusalem. And in that way, he's like a type, right? He looks ahead to a spiritual savior, one who will accomplish a far greater liberation, right? So, 
The temple, the city walls were finished around 444 in the days of Nehemiah. And that city and that temple, as it stood, as it was built up following that decree, would remain until the anointed one, you see this, the anointed one arrives. Okay. The anointed one, or called the prince or ruler, is a reference to Messiah. Okay. First, though, before he came, however, there would yet be a much longer period. So now we have... Uh, Here's the first stage. Sorry about that. The second stage, okay. 62 weeks. You say, well, why, why 62 weeks? Well, we don't really know. The number 62 appears only one other time in Daniel. Did you know that? In chapter 5, verse 31. Interesting connection. It says, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom... Same Darius as in Daniel chapter 9, being about 62 years old. So Darius was 62 years old when he received the kingdom, when he took over after Babylon was destroyed. Now, if Darius is the same man as Cyrus, and many people think that he is, then perhaps the 62 weeks is foreshadowing a Cyrus-like ruler a Savior who is to come, perhaps. But Gabriel says two things about this period. First, he says, you'll see there, that it's going to be built, the city's going to be built with squares and moat. It's an expression that means it's going to be completed. Okay? But it also says that he will be built in a troubled time. Now, this has already been foreshadowed in Daniel 8. Remember by the little horn? The reign of Antiochus IV was a time of immense trouble for the Jews. But the temple and the city were not destroyed. They remained intact through that troubled time. Okay. So, first stage, the seven weeks. Next stage, the 62. So far then, okay, as we have heard the message, 69 of the 70 weeks have transpired in the message. And none of the six purposes have yet been fulfilled. In fact, all we have is trouble, a troubled time. But God was working. It wasn't done yet, was it? And by the way, He's working in your troubled time. He's not absent, but as the Scripture says, He's a very present help in times of trouble. It may seem like things have all run amok, and yet I want you to rest assured that God indeed is bringing His purpose to pass. And it culminated in the most unlikely of events. Right? We asked earlier, what must happen for all those purposes of the 70 weeks to be complete, to happen? Well, here we come in verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, same one from before, shall be cut off and have nothing. Now, here's something interesting. That phrase, and have nothing, can also be rendered, but not for himself. So, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off, but not for himself. I think the idea is pretty clear, isn't it? The anointed one is going to die violently. Okay, that's the idea in cut off. 
And yet, it's not for a cause in himself, but for, that is, in the place of others. And Isaiah goes on and he fills us in on this role because he says in actually the very same language, speaking of the very same individual in Isaiah 53, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken, not for himself, but for what? For the transgression of my people. As we look to the New Testament, the picture of who this is being spoken of is crystallized, right? Suddenly, all the purposes for which Daniel was told to anticipate begin to dawn. So think about this, okay? Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. It's literally tabernacled among us, right? And John says that we saw His glory. By the way, the same glory that belonged in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle of Moses, John says, rested on this one. That was a shadow, the tabernacle. Jesus is the substance. In other words, you say this, He is, therefore, the Most Holy, who sanctified Himself for us. He is the Most Holy that has been anointed. And this same Jesus, the Son, was God's final word to men. There is no one else who can add to what He has done or improve upon what He has declared. In Him, all that the prophets searched for is found. Do you remember the experience of the travelers on the road to Emmaus? It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He seals both vision and prophet. Well, this same Jesus, the Lamb, would become the sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. For it says in Hebrews, But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So I see that He puts an end to sin. Now, this same Jesus, our high priest, offered himself to forever atone for our iniquities. Our sins, by the way, our wrongs, which reparations must be made, right? But it says in Hebrews, But when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and bulls and calves, but of his own, thus securing an eternal redemption. So, yes. He atones for our iniquities. Well, this same Jesus, the servant, when He hung on a cross, cried out, It is finished. Speaking of His work to save men from their sin and transgression. So yes, He finishes the transgression, doesn't He? And this same Jesus, the righteous, has brought in everlasting righteousness to all who trust, not in their own, but in His. As Paul writes, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He brings in everlasting righteousness. Listen, this is as far as we're going to get today, because this is where we ought to stop. 
This one who was cut off is the reason that we're here today. He's the hope of the prophets. He's the love of God made manifest. Is it any wonder that the message was given to Daniel at the time, think about it, of the evening sacrifice? Oh, by the way, that was the very hour, 3 p.m., when the Lord was cut off for you and me. So yes, you are greatly loved. Let's give thanks. Lord, it's a lot to take in, a lot to think about. But I think most of all, it's just to absorb the love that was told, that was foretold to Daniel, that came to pass in Jesus. Because he was all those things. So, Father, I'm asking that you would bless us and that we might know the love of the Father more so than we did when we first came here today. May we see how greatly he has loved us. May he so work in our lives that love for him is produced and fruit of that love was extended to others. So, Lord, thank you for this word. We need to hear it today. And I pray for your blessing as we continue to look at it in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name, amen.